0: Welcome to this special episode of the Salon Era podcast. Salon Era is a series from Leyda Lise that brings together musicians from around the world to share music, stories, and scholarship. In this episode, we'll hear excerpts from Leyda Lise's concert program, Isabella's Renaissance, its 2022 23 season closer. I'm your host, Hannah DePriest. During this episode, you'll also hear the voices of Leyda founder and artistic director, Deborah Naiki. Renaissance fiddle player Anna Demilevskaya and lutenist Emelisa Rue. The music you'll hear in today's episode was recorded during live performances of Isabella's Renaissance in April 2023 in Cleveland, Ohio. The Isabella of the program title is Isabella d'Este, the most powerful patroness of the 16th century. This concert, another in a long line of productive collaborations with Boston's Blue Heron, Brings the music Isabella d'Este enjoyed listening to and performing at her Mantuan court to modern audiences. These concerts marked the Ladelis debuts of two very exciting young European musicians Anna Danilevskaya, the artistic director of Salazzo, an ensemble dedicated to medieval and Renaissance music, and Emma Lisa Rue, who performs across Europe as a singing lutenist. They joined artistic director Deborah Nagy and seasoned collaborators Blue Heron Scott Metcalf and soprano Elena Mullins Bailey. We'll get to their exquisite music soon, but first, who was Isabella d'Este? Isabella d'Este was a military tactician, philosopher, tastemaker, musician, and pivotal patroness of Renaissance art, music, and fashion. As Marchesa of Mantua, she ruled in her husband's absence and developed the Mantuan court as a hub of artistic innovation. Born in 1474, Isabella benefited from an exceptionally well-rounded humanist education. She was a skilled translator who even as a child could fluently speak Latin and Greek and recite Virgil by heart, to the delight of the ambassadors and political liaisons who frequented the Ferrarin court. Like many girls from politically connected families, Isabella's marriage was determined for her when she was still a child. Her betrothal to the future Marquise de Mantua was made official when she was just six years old, and they were married a decade later when she was sixteen. Her husband's frequent military campaigns gave Isabella remarkable political power in Mantua and over life at court. Soon after the wedding, Isabella wrote to her father to send for her music tutors Girolamo de Saxtula and Johannes Martini and set about establishing a musical household at her new home in Mantua complete with her own house band and instrument collection all told she hired 12 new musicians for the Mantuan court isabella also commissioned the construction of special rooms called camerini to house her considerable library and art collection centuries before virginia woolf penned a room of one's own isabella created a private space to write reflect practice and host intimate musical performances. Under her careful curatorial eye, the Mantuan court became home to some of the most important artists, musicians, and poets of the Renaissance. In music, Isabella contracted composers Bartolomeo Tromboncino and Marco Cara to write music for her to enjoy as both a performer and listener. Let's hear from Deborah Nagy about how she went about crafting a program depicting Isabella d'Este's legacy through the music she loved. Yeah, well, Isabella
1: is such a unique personality and person. She's incredibly accomplished. You know, she has such a rich life and and also a rich personality that uh, she kind of put on display for us all to appreciate um, now as well as then. And I wanted to basically create a program that uh, kind of was a window into the different facets of her personality, or the different kind of um, elements of her world. Um, of course, she's a tremendous patron, um, and she really patronized music that she herself was interested to perform. Um, and she was a singer, lutenist, viol player, and also played keyboards. And so, in particular. Um, Lute music and singing to the lute is a as a feature of the sort of patronage section. Um, you know, a private pleasures is another section on the program that extends this idea of, you know, how she would spend her um, personal and private time and the kind of pleasure that she might take in different instruments, different um, forms, including dance music. Um, of course, she was heavily engaged in politics. Um, and there's a section of our program that, that focuses around that. Um, and we end with, with celebration of festivities and festivities and kind of joyous lightness that would have to be part of the yin and yang, if you will, that is uh, this kind of uh, public political life that she led. In researching this program, I wanted to pull music from sources that had some close relationship to Isabella. Music, musicians, even manuscripts that either she would have known that were given to her um, or that form the basis of later publications. So uh, we get a lot of the instrumental music in this program from a songbook book uh, from uh, Ferrara uh, from her youth. And This is known as the Kazana Tensei Chansonnier, and I call it a songbook kind of in quotation marks because none of the pieces in there have any text. The songs, as it were, have titles, names. Some of them are very well-known songs, and others are some of the most important kind of purely instrumental music that we have from the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance, so pieces that are just called fuga. Or Martinella, or then in these kind of early polyphonic fantasies. So that was an important source. Um, there are um, a couple of manuscript sources for Frottole, which is a uh, early Italian uh, song form that's really the predecessor to the Madrigal that Isabella had really strong um, hand in patronizing uh, through her musicians. She, as a humanist, was into the recitation of Italian poetry. And recitation was often through song form or accompanied in some way by music. And this strophic form of the frottola is, is actually a way of essentially reciting poetry uh, to musical accompaniment. The program itself uh, begins with a set called Contemplation. And in part because uh, it was very important in that time that uh, music was thought of as an intellectual application. Um, We have a, um, a set that's called Contemplation. And of course, this Contemplation happens in a very specific place, which is her personal study or studiolo. And her personal study was decorated in, um, in ways that reflected her sense of self, and in particular also in ways that reflected how important music was to her. So in addition to you know, uh, images of music, musicians, uh, instruments, uh, there is actually a piece of music that has been, if you will, written out in wood. And it's the first piece on our program, and it's a piece you're about to hear. Um, by Johannes Akegum and this canon is in three voices, prenez sur moi. I always love these canons that sort of describe the the process of um, manifesting them. Um, The first line of this is prenez sur moi uh, votre exemple amoureuse. So take by me your example, your amorous example, which is a way of saying like hey follow after me, which is of course how a canon works. and uh, it's a it's a very cool piece.
0: Let's now take a listen to Akagem's puzzle piece. Prenez sur moi. As a well-read, ambitious noblewoman in the 16th century, Isabella d'Este certainly would have known The Book of the Courtier, an influential text by writer Baldassare Castiglione. The book, written as a series of philosophical dialogues, describes the ideal attributes of a courtier, and became a kind of how-to guide for making a splash at court. Among the most important qualities for a courtier to possess was the ability to play a carefully constructed role while appearing natural and at ease. Castiglione coined a special term to describe this kind of grace, sprezzatura, which could also be defined as the art of making something incredibly difficult look and sound effortless. This kind of grace was equally valuable in music performance, as the next three selections clearly demonstrate. We'll first hear Josquin Dupré's three-voice instrumental fantasy, La Bernardina, full of playful rhythmic syncopations. Then Jakob Obrecht's Fuga, which sounds virtuosic and exciting, but was also composed in a rigorously intellectual way. The four-voice fugue is derived from just one notated voice, and the three upper voices follow it very quickly in extremely close imitation. The lowest, slow-moving voice is generated by sounding only the longest note values in octave lower and proceeds at one-sixth the speed. Last, we'll hear soprano Elena Mullins Bailey sing Bartolomeo Tromboncino's Ostinato Voseguire, full of flowing scales and delightful rhythmic variations. Next, we'll hear from guest artist Anna Danilevskaya, a Renaissance fiddle and vial player who sat down with Deborah Nagy to describe her life, her passion for Renaissance music, and to tell us about one of her most unique instruments, the Vihuela d'Arco. I'm Anna, uh, Anna Danilevskaya.
2: I have a very long last name because I was born in Russia. And then I grew up in France um, and studied medieval music, first in Barcelona. Uh, then in Lyon and then in Basel Uh, and I play strange instruments, strange instruments with strings (laughs) Um, uh, The Vielle, which is um, the version one of the most uh, common uh, string instrument at that time and that had a very versatile use It was used to accompany singers, which is one of the things that I love Mm. Uh, and it was used for instrumental music so um, I, I like that very much. And then I expanded my repertory to later uh, things. And so I started to play the Viuela de Arco and the early Renaissance gamba. So I stopped my repertory at 1570, which for most people is very early. <laughs> but for me, it's the latest I can do.
1: Can I ask you how you found your
2: way to medieval music? So my father uh, is a lute player Um, So he was already doing this music, the same that I do, (laughs) and partly the same pieces. Uh, When he was young in Russia, he was one of the first uh, to perform this music in Russia. They had a medieval music group there, Uh, and then he came to France for political reasons and continued his uh, research and career. So I grew up with this music in the background all the time. Um, And it's. I think anyone can very much adopt it as its own language. But I think also that the fact that I heard it my whole life makes it that for me it's the default language Mm -hmm. and the one I'm the most comfortable.
1: Fascinating. And
2: so what was your first instrument, in fact? Uh, I started to play the violin when I was very small, when I was three, and then my parents said that I didn't practice enough. (laughs) So they they stopped that, and then I started again at age six, playing recorder, then flute, violin again, uh, gamba. Piano. It was a mix. It was a yeah. little bit a mix. I did a bit of everything, and I uh, started to play the viol specifically with fourteen. Oh wow! Because my father made instruments for himself, lutes usually, uh, and he made one viol, and then um, he started playing, and I started playing at the same time. Okay,
1: that's so cool. I wanted to ask you if you have any role models from the Renaissance or or the medieval period that inspire your approach and your music making.
2: I'm very fascinated with the figure of Juana La Loca. So Juana La Loca had a terrible life, I have to say. Um, She was held captive. For forty years, I believe, um, and in, in Spain, in a, in a, in terrible conditions. Uh, but before that, she she had like the life of of a, a, a queen. Uh, many travels and so on. She uh, was a musician herself, and we know some pieces that she played. We know that she sang, that she played the club, Simbalum, uh, she had uh, very good musicians around her, um, and what makes me very much sympathize with her is. So she was called La Loca, the crazy, mm. but in fact, I think in today's uh, in today's standards, it would be completely different. Mm. Uh, she was a very passionate woman. Uh, she fell in love with her husband, which is quite an exceptional thing. It was a an agreement of a marriage uh, for questions of powers and and houses. And she generally fell in love with him. Um, And first it was a very beautiful love story. Then it was not so beautiful. He lost interest and she reacted in a very, maybe contemporary way as we would now. And she was treated as crazy. There are also, of course, political things behind. And so on. But what I particularly uh, admire in her is that she was from um, uh, the, her teenagerhood, she was a skeptic, so she didn't believe and um, what I find exceptional is that her mother was one of the figures that launched the Inquisition and so on. She tortured her own daughter oh my and she still was very strong about it and kept her belief.
1: Amazing! In these concerts, you played a vihuela de arco, and I'm hoping you can talk to us about this instrument and maybe also tell it, tell us a bit about how it's different from instruments that we may be more familiar with.
2: You mentioned the Vielle and the viola da gamba. So it's a missing link instrument. It's between the Vienne and it has some of its features. For instance, that it's carved, the body is carved from top to to down in one piece of wood mm. and not glued like later, like the gambas. Yeah. But it has also some features of the later instruments, uh, like the long neck, uh, some aspects of the tuning. And it offers the possibilities of the, the best of both worlds. Uh, it offers... Uh, the possibility of uh, accompanying singers like a viola woods with uh, some chords or with very smooth tenor lines and it also has the brilliance of the viola da gamba that's, that uh, we see later um, is,
1: and is that because of the frets that offer that um, really focused sound?
2: Yes, that's one of the, of the aspects, so the frets uh, stop the string Mm-hmm. Which means that you have way more flexibility in terms of chords, like you would have sure. on a guitar. Um, and its origin is not completely clear, so, some people, there are different theories. So, it came from Spain. Um, and then it was spread in all Europe, and uh, it was used to perform uh, the best music: Dufail, Benchois, Agricola, et etc. Um, and it's not completely clear whether it's coming from the vielle or if it was the mix of a vielle and the plucked instruments. Uh, there are different theories that are debated today, and indeed it's called the Viuela de Arco. Tintoris is the one that gives this name, uh, and he calls it also demi lute, so half a lute in French. So they certainly um, a link to the vihuela de mano, which is the one that's plucked. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and in the um, in the concerts, you spoke actually about a a pair of
2: vihuela players. So uh, those are actually two pairs of mm. vihuela players. Uh, it was sometimes believed that it was one, also uh, two, only two players that had a very long career. Um, but it turned out that uh, those two, the brother Fernandez, came from the Iberian uh, peninsula. They were invited to the court of Burgundy when they were quite, quite young. And uh, they were court musicians and played both of them in the Viewer de Arco. Um, and they had a very long and successful career at the court and they played for some um, very important political meetings so that's how we know um, what how yeah the role that they had at the court um they played even in the chambers when someone was invited an important person was invited they played in their chambers Mm. and uh, yeah that's quite a remarkable thing And there were, um, um, Martin Lefranc says that even Dufailly and Benchois were jealous of the sweetness of their melodies. Wow. So we imagine that they probably improvised as well. Um, And one of them had two sons that also were blind and also became uh, vioella players. Um, And those two sons, again, had an amazing career. They traveled to Italy and then um, and worked with composers. Uh, there is a very famous and extravagant piece by Agricola, which was written for them. Um, and at some points, they stopped playing.
1: Well, what we're going to hear in a moment is the uh, original song by Okugam of Dang Outremer, as well as a sort of fantasy, or I shouldn't say that, really an elaboration, rather exquisite elaboration um, on that tune by Tim Toys and probably Espana after that. And so i what would you love for listeners to know or to hear in this music?
2: So um, what I find quite nice is the idea that uh, uh, composers at that time had the habit uh, or the costume of building some pieces, some of their own pieces, around another tune. So it could be a, a popular tune, it could be uh, a tune of a composer that they, they admired. Um, and that's quite nice because it's uh, it's also showing how um, authorship was different. Uh, so Danotrame is a three-part piece and then Tintoris transforms it into a, a solo. Uh, and then it's to be found in uh, we knew that Tintoris knew these Viuela players and it's to be found in a codex, Segovia Codex, where an entire layer, layer of pieces are these kind of pieces that became two parts, and one of them is very flourished. Um, so that's kind of a, a borrowing from yeah. from another piece, and it makes the pieces travel from one world to the other. For instance, a, a song can become a mass, part of a mass. Uh, so we work, we jump from um, secular world to sacred, or uh, a, a song can become a dance. So lose its words and become uh, completely different. Lose its character as well, and, and obey rather to the rhythms than the words. Um, and in the case of the España, um, the tenor of the España becomes the center of the piece, and around there are a lot of counterpoints, really refined and really extravagant. Um, so it's it's uh, it becomes a little bit music for musicians. Mm. It has this coolness of. Uh, look at what I can do around a tenor.
1: Yeah. And, you know, for so many people, the medieval period and early Renaissance is, is such a kind of anonymous moment, not only because there are more surviving pieces by anonymous, by people we don't know than, than the opposite, but it's so amazing and such an opportunity for music to be infused with an individual's personality. and we sort of, it's easy for us to overlook or not think about that. And so I love that's what you're talking about with uh, the for instance, putting his stamp on Dango Tamer and maybe even being able to imagine the particular skill set or artistry of individual players at that moment who are well known. So it's so fabulous. It's been a great pleasure to, to work with you and and learn from you and thank and spend you. time with you and it's
2: wonderful for me really.
1: yeah and thanks so much for talking with me today as well my pleasure thank you
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Salonera. We are so excited to share more about our fourth season in the coming months. Salonera started in 2020 as a pandemic project. Since then, we've reached a global audience of music lovers. Thank you for being part of our community. If you enjoy what you're hearing today, please consider making a donation at salonera.org. Now let's get back to today's episode and an interview with lutenist Emelisa Rue. My name is Emelisa Roux.
3: I come from France, uh, close, from close to Paris, let's say. Uh, now I live, uh, I am based close to Basel,
1: Switzerland, and I play different flutes and sing. And what is the lute that you've been playing in this set of performances with Les Delices and um, also with Blue Heron? So, I've been playing a brand-new instrument that was
3: made by a lute maker called Jacob Mariani. And it was the idea of this instrument was to create an instrument that could be used for music around 1500. So that you could play um, one line with the plectrum, for instance, but also be able to play polyphony with the fingers rather than with the plectrum, and that was kind of perfect
1: for me and for my practice as a lute player. And is the instrument based on a surviving model or inspired by pictures? So it is inspired by a painting in the 1530s. You have been immersed in uh, music uh, of the Renaissance for years, actually, and I wondered if you have any particular Renaissance role models, what be they individuals, artists, or musicians whose surviving legacy inspires you in some way.
3: So yeah, there
1: are several, several musicians
3: I can think about. Um, in Italy, I would say it's definitely actually very linked with this program because it's Marche Cara and uh, Tromboncino, Bartolomeo Tromboncino. Um, because both of them were known to have played and sung and, and that's where for me it's... I, I really appreciate having any information about singing lute players, of course. And there's a third musician who we really don't know much about, um, but she might have been called Francesca Bellamano. Mm. And she was known for um, being a beautiful lute player. And there's some, because this the name comes back in different poems or lists, people assume she might have sung, but actually I haven't found concrete proof.
2: Well, she would she... have
1: been Bella Voce. were <laughs> <if laughs>
2: yeah, the yeah, case. Sure. <laughs> but it's, it's
3: like these characters that are very interesting and you want to know more and then you kind of fall short.
1: How were you first introduced to the lute?
3: So uh, when I was six years old, I my mother told me to asked me if I wanted to go to the conservatory, and then um, I was introduced quite accidentally to the lute. So I, I just saw uh, the lute teacher came to our class uh, to introduce the lute, and. Um, There was also a recorder teacher who came to that same class, and I thought I could only pick between these two instruments.
1: (laughs) The only ones in the world, the the lute or the recorder. Well,
3: to be fair, it was very reasonable. I thought the the other classes were full. Mm. So then I picked the lute, and I went to a first class with this teacher, and I absolutely fell in love. I think more with her than with the instrument at first, because she was amazing. And then, slowly, I gradually fell in love with the lute and stayed with it until now.
1: Since you self-accompany and take up the practice of singing to the lute, which is, of course, very historical in a variety of ways, I wonder how your preparation for a performance when you're both singing and playing may or may not differ from when you're uh, doing lute solo repertory or other sorts of accompanying. Yeah, it's very different. And at the same time, it's not ideal. <laughs> I know it's it a should. lot. It's like, you know, rubbing your stomach and patting your head at the same time. Yeah,
3: so I know what I should do, but then, of course, I don't. Uh, but I, I'd like to say that I first learn, for example, uh, the, the the part that the voice will do and then learn the lute and then put them together. It's not true. I, I treat it all together and then... Yeah, until it feels comfortable, basically. Um, and then realize that I should isolate the voice. <laughs> and this is when I know the piece and I know how it goes, then I take things separately. I separate uh, lute and voice. and Then eventually put them back together. Um, ideally, you would just sing first, because it's very easy to take really bad habits with the voice. Right while you're playing, of course. But it's hard not to have the full, like, the full picture of a song. Um, it's hard not to start with that.
1: We're going to hear a bit of your performance of um, Marchetto Cara, uh, Per dolor me bagno il viso. And what is this piece about? What are you singing about? So I'm singing about uh, the, the texts
3: of a poet that probably lost the love of his life, as many do. And he he explains how he's wallowing in his sorrow Mm. and bathing his face in tears. Absolutely. And yeah, the first verse is about explaining how, how painful his life is. And the second verse I'll be singing is about how everything in his life he was the the luckiest man alive and all of that was taken away from him and then i come back to the
1: sorrow right well it sounds so gorgeous and it's been such a pleasure uh, not only to perform with you and hear you play and and learn from the delicacy that you bring to what you do but also to chat thank you so much well thank you very much Oh, my God.
0: After that wonderful interview with Emelisa Rue, we heard her performing two works from Isabella's Renaissance. The first was a piece for solo lute by Vincenzo Capirola, and then a piece by Marchetto Cara Per Dolor Mi Bagno Il Viso, in which Emelisa both sang and played the lute. We wanted to end today's podcast episode with the same music that ended our Isabella's Renaissance program so I'll turn it back over to Deborah Nagy to introduce these last two pieces. Thanks again for listening.
1: We are about to hear a dance piece and an early madrigal. The dance piece is called Gracioso. It comes down to us from some dancing masters from Ferrara, which is of course where Isabella came from. She likely studied and danced alongside uh, Guglielmo Ebreo del Pesaro. What we get in these dance treatises is not just the steps, but a really important source for early dance music. The music that we have is just a single line of music. And yet we know that this music would have been rendered or realized by at least a trio, if not a quartet of musicians and we also have a strong sense that they were skilled in improvising polyphony. So, um, in creating these performances for Les Delices, for Isabella's Renaissance, it was a matter of taking these original tunes, following the rules with a bit of creativity and some improvisation, um, to create three and four voice textures with, with our ensemble and, you know, try and rec- recreate this sound. And you're going to hear a combination of viol Lute, Viola, Darko, and it's actually me playing the Dusen on what is the original tune, the tenor. And the last thing on the program is a super fun, um, Really early madrigal called A la Cazza. So, this is a, a super fun piece. You'll hear it myself, Elena Mullins Bailey, and Emilisa Rue singing along with um, Vihuela Darko with Anna Danilevskaya and Scott uh, pl- Metcalf playing harp on this very fun and funny kind of depiction of going out for the hunt. <laughs>
0: much for listening to this special episode of Salonera. Support for Salonera is provided by Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, the Ohio Arts Council, and audience members like you. This episode was created by executive producer Deborah Nagy, associate producer Shelby Yaman, and me, Hannah Priest, your scriptwriter, episode host, and Leda Lease special projects manager. This episode featured selections from live performances of Isabella's Renaissance, recorded by Leda Lease in April 2023. Special thanks to Deborah Nagy, Anna Danilevskaya, and Emily Zaru for sharing their insights, and the rest of our incredible musicians featured on this program, Scott Metcalf and Elena Mullins-Bailey. And thank you to audio engineer Andrew Tripp for recording our live performances. To support this podcast, visit salonera.org. This is the last podcast for this season. We will be back in the fall with all new episodes, including episodes like this one that delve deep into Lady Elise's concert series programs. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.